0: To miles Edward O'Brien to friendship ah oh. <sighs> uh. would well, better get home Keiko is holding dinner for me this late yeah well she's a hell of a woman that's why you love her hmm? that's right that's why I love her you want to come
1: Sure. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission. To explore all of Star Trek. To seek out new guests and new opinions. To boldly
0: go where many have gone before.
1: Welcome to episode 12 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're looking at the Julian Bashir-Miles O'Brien bromance that was developed over the course of seven seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And by we, I mean myself and Kurt Onstad on the other coast, really. Hi, Kurt. Hi. This is your first podcast appearance on the network or any network. That's true. How do
0: you feel?
2: A little nervous, but... Uh... Should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, if this works out, I'm probably going to try to start my own podcast related to my favorite superheroes, the New Warriors, when their new television show gets started.
1: Well, there you go. We'll be looking forward to that. In the meantime, let's do some Star Trek. Kurt is a, uh, a good friend of both my blog and my podcast. I'm, I'm glad to have him on the, the show on its one-year anniversary, more or less, We of the 12th episode. Kurt, we can't go any further into the topic before you take the quiz that every guest has to date so the people out there know who they're dealing with, what kind of Trekkie you are. So if you're ready, how did the Star Trek adventure start for you? Why is it an important show for you?
2: Uh, well, it's actually kind of funny. My very first introduction to Star Trek was just randomly turning on the television. One day we had free cable at the house and I turned on HBO and and the first thing I see is this man screaming in pain, falling on the ground, and then this gross earwig thing comes crawling out. And I immediately went, Ugh, what is this? I am never watching this again. Okay, it's. Star Trek. All right. Steering away from Star Trek from now on. That is just not for me. <laughs> but years later, I moved up a little north and my next door neighbor, who became my best friend, introduced me to the original series in syndication. And we watched every single episode together and and then watched the movies and Star Trek 4 came out in theaters, and, you know, I just, I fell in love with that original crew, and then, you know, Next Gen premiered the very next year. It just became kind of. Part of who I was was becoming a a Trekker growing up in middle school and high school.
1: It does become part of the the fabric of our culture, especially if you were there when the show was big and it was pretty big during the TNG era. Well, let's talk about just your favorite things. Which is your favorite show or version of the show?
2: Definitely DS9. I love how it tells much more of a continuing story. You see much more character development and people can grow and move on and do new things and also how dark it can get you know it really questions the morality of the characters and they you know they always for the most part end up doing the right thing but it actually gives them real internal conflicts that they're not always just the most moral here we are, we're Starfleet, we know what to do. But they actually have those questions of, is this right?
1: we got to compromise a lot more than the other characters and other shows seem to do.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Who's your favorite character then from deep space nine or any version of star trek
2: i i was thinking about this and i i don't have so much as a favorite character as i have a a favorite archetype that you see in every iteration and it is the outsider the alien the one who comments on humanity from outside of humanity in the original series, that's Spock in Next Generation. It's Data in DS9. It's mostly Odo with mm. a little bit of Quark mixed in. Then in Voyager, it started out as the Doctor, and then Seven and Nine kind of took that role over. But it's always the person who gets to look at humanity and say out loud what you know some of us are are thinking about, you know well, that seems silly or s- stupid or just ridiculous.
1: Comment on the absurdity of the human condition. I really like your answer. It's uh, sort of a upper atmosphere kind of look at uh, the franchise. Interesting choice, or choices, really. So who's your favorite alien species?
2: I think it's the, the Ferengi.
1: Hmm.
2: I mean, they started very one-note in next generation, but especially in DS9, we really get to see what makes them tick. We get to learn a lot about their culture through the the laws of acquisition, and they become a really interesting look because they're so capitalist. You get to use them to kind of look at and parody and comment on some of today's society, much more than the Federation or any of the alien, other alien creatures. Really, I think.
1: So the Ferengi, that's, I think that's the second time I've heard that answer in 12 episodes. Uh, I guess they're, they're almost front runners at this point. (laughs) It's them or the Vulcans, I think. And the Betazoid somehow got a couple of votes. Anyway, I'm keeping track of this. Somehow it'll, you know, maybe I'll do something later with it. So let's just get into that topic. The bromance between O'Brien and Bashir. And I think it's, you mentioned this about space 9, how relationships in that show seem to evolve or more organically, playing a longer game. It's not just they were friends at the beginning and they're friends at the end. That's not at all what this is. And this is a topic that you suggested. So why Bashir and O'Brien? What is it about this pairing that interested you so much that you had to talk about it on a podcast well
2: they're like you said they're they're the most organic of all the friendships they're you know you get to actually see them start out uh you know Bashir kind of follows o'brien around like a puppy dog at first and uh you know is like i want to be your friend i want to be your friend and o'brien's like no Get away <laughs> but you get to see them you know get to know each other better and grow close and become really the the kind of friendship that I've had some of those kinds of friendships in my life uh, they're they're the ones who they're geeks. <laughs> they, they love to, you know, play in the holodeck or play racquetball together or darts or just hang out and talk, but they really seem the most genuine of friends. Of all of the different relationships in Star Trek, I think theirs is the one that is the most real and the, the one that, that reminds me the most of my own friendships with people in my life.
1: Yeah, I think it's tough for us you – know, people who have lived in relative peacetime all their lives – to really get what the other friendships are about, like the the Spock-Kirk friendship. They're serving together. It's true also for O'Brien and Bashir. They're serving together. But some of these friendships seem to be be tested in war and tested in military service. They're friends who would give up their lives for one another. And while I might give up my life for a friend, I'm unlikely to be in that situation ever. I I won't undergo that test. (laughs) Probably not. Yeah, and...
2: Technically, O'Brien and Bashir serve together on DS9, but not very often do they actually have to work together. They're friends beyond being co-workers or, you know, like Kirk and Spock or Kirk and McCoy, even though there's a friendship there, they're still at the base of it, a superior officer versus a, you know, junior officer relationship to it as well. Whereas, you know, look at the other iterations of Star Trek, your chief medical officer and your chief engineer, other than scenes in sickbay, how often do you actually see those two Getting together and talking with one another, unless it's part of a bigger scene with the entire senior crew. You know, you never see Jordy and Crusher or Torres and the EMH, or you know, you just can't picture them hanging out together. But Bashir and O'Brien, you know, really found one another, even though they're from completely different parts of the station and don't have to interact that often work-wise they're still truly friends.
1: And even the the writers say so, where the writers and producers. Uh I was reading a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. And after the episode Explorers, we'll get to that. We'll we'll track the entire relationship through. You know, we watched about ten to twelve key episodes and preparation for this and there's a middle part where in explorers which is uh, a show which has a couple of plots the most prominent of which is uh, cisco and jake taking a a light ship a jordan light ship uh, to cardassia somehow but there's also a subplot for bashir and o'brien where bashir sees the valedictorian of his class and uh, you know he's insecure about it because she beat him but they have a scene drinking together in that they get drunk together and yes, and sing Jerusalem. Right, of course, Brits. But, you know, they have, <laughs> that's the one thing they have in common is sort of the Britannia element, both the actors and the um, characters they play. That scene, the chemistry in that scene, what they brought out in that scene is basically what made uh, that relationship the favorite of the people working on Deep Space Nine. Whether that's Ronald Moore, the key writer who went on to be showrunner on uh, Battlestar Galactica and uh, Outlander. But, Also, you know, the the actors themselves, there are quotations from various producers and writers of the series that just wanted those two guys to get together more. And that's why we do get some episodes where they find a way to have the engineer and the doctor working together and then saving one another's lives across this, testing their friendship along the way, evolving the friendship through trials. Because this is, after all, a science fiction action drama. There has to be, you know, jeopardy. Uh, which perhaps is not part of our friendships in normal life uh, not necessarily but hopefully hopefully yeah but uh <laughs> you know we we don't need that kind of thing but the relationship that they have on in downtime that's the part I agree that's so realistic where it's about building models and it's about playing well role-playing is is what they do it's the basically the in our world today these guys would have sort of Weekly, they'd be larpers. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Exactly. That's the <laughs> the equivalent for the holiday. So these guys would have a, a, you know a weekly D and D session. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. And these guys could be they are from different worlds, and it's not just medical and engineering. It's not just there's an officer and the other one's a like a petty chief, which is a non com, non commissioned officer. He has to call his friend sir. You know, originally, it's also family man versus the wannabe ladies' man, the, you know, the hardcore single guy. It's the curmudgeon who's seen it all and kind of cynical and war-beaten versus the enthusiastic kid, almost naive in his ideals. It's someone who cares about essentials versus someone who is kind of flighty and about living life and having fun, YOLO, you know. So these two are very, very, very different people. They're thrown together at first and that somehow a, a friendship develops that is strong and true and fun is part of the magic of Deep Space 9. It's not the only relationship that grows so well during that series, but it's Oh,
2: definitely not. I mean, uh Odo and Kira's yeah. relationship, Jake and Nog, yeah, there's a lot of of great relationships on DS9, but you know, I'll always come back to O'Brien and Bashir as as one of the best relationships in all of Star Trek
1: and this could easily have been spun into a you know an older man mentor pupil kind of relationship but it's not they're equals it doesn't the age doesn't matter and that's that that feels very true to the friendships that I have uh, where you might have older and younger people in the group uh, or very closely bonded but it's like age disappears. Everybody's the same age, really, because they're all on the same wavelength as far as what they like to do, and and they're still able to, to feud and debate and not have the same opinion, and and then still respect themselves. You know, the next time they see each other. So, I, I agree with you. I feel this is one of the highlights of D Space Nine and of Star Trek, as far as relationships go, and especially since we start out with. Dying
0: annoy you annoy me <laughs> what sort of a question is that well the thing is we've just spent the last two hours alone together in this runabout and you have hardly said a word to me the whole time really oh. i hadn't noticed oh i see i suppose it's because i was too busy thinking thinking that's right about what 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 were you thinking about i'm just curious well let's see um well, I was thinking that when we get back to the station I'll have to run a level one diagnostic on the phase coil generators satisfied? I suppose so Glad to hear it I mean the only reason I bring it up is because your opinion means a lot to me And I'm aware that I have a tendency to run off at the mouth sometimes Is that a fact? I suppose it's just a nervous habit <laughs> I hope you don't hold it against me Well not at all sir And one more thing What's that sir? I don't think it's really necessary to call me, sir. But well, what should I call you? Well, you're my superior officer. I'm not Julian. Is that an order? Oh, no, of course not. It's just that I'd simply prefer it if you called me by my first name.
1: All right. I think originally we we're with O'Brien because we knew him from TNG, right? Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't like Bashir and that nobody really likes Bashir... Uh, <laughs> It makes us not like Bashir.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he was... I remember when, when DS9 first started airing that for the most part, people were not fans of Bashir. He was too bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just, you know, like I said earlier, you know, kind of following everyone around like a puppy dog, O'Brien wanting to be his best friend, Dax wanting to be more than friends. Episode 14, season one, we get a nice early episode of getting these two together and seeing how they click.
1: Yeah, we're talking you're talking about the storyteller and that's like the first yes. time they put these two together and make them clash because up to then they'd been only Professional together, let's say. I actually went back to Emissary to see the, the, like the pilot, the first episode, to see what was their first interaction. And just to see. And the first interaction they had was basically, it's just professional talk, and the only conflict we might feel is that O'Brien feels the need to correct Bashir about the Cardassians. More or less, Bashir trusts the Cardassians more than he should because he doesn't know anything about anything, and so O'Brien sort of corrects him. It's a start at a rom-com there, let's say. It's just two people acting professionally together, obviously not agreeing, and you, you're seeing the experienced older man with the younger, the rookie, the green rookie. That's how it starts. Yeah. Uh, but with the storyteller, uh, we have them together and actually interacting the whole time, and not liking each well not liking each other. I think Bashir likes O'Brien fine. He'd like to have his approval. He wants him to call him Julian and it's all very awkward and forced and Ob- yes. <laughs> O'Brien is like rolling his eyes and you know you derive a lot of comedy from that.
2: Yeah, and Bashir he thinks there's more of a relationship there at that point than there is. You know, he enjoys O'Brien's awkwardness with being named the the new sarah and the the women being offered to him he is loving every second of it and the fact that O'Brien is awkward and hates this whole thing Bashir's just having You know, loving that even more. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, and this is the first time they sort of, they don't really, well, yeah, they save each other more or less. It's not, uh, they come to each other's aid, but it's not enough to really create the bond uh, of friendship quite yet. You know, it's not as easy as that. I, I feel like Bashir maybe... Is a Star Trek fan, and it's like the sort of thing where he goes, well, you know, uh, obviously every uh, everyone on the original Enterprise crew was friends, and everybody in TNG were friends. Pretty quickly. So obviously I'm part of the inner circle. I gotta be friends with O'Brien because that's sort of metatextual on my part. But you know, it's, it's what we as Star Trek fans expect that they're all going to be friends. And Deep Space Nine was not that. And I think a lot of people at first, and some of them stopped watching the show, I think, didn't like Bashir because O'Brien didn't like him, didn't like Kira because, you know, she was also an irritant and didn't like the, the characters that were in conflict with the rest. Because why isn't this a happy family? And I think the whole point of D Space Nine is showing how we don't necessarily start there so long as we get there. They're really playing the long game. That's what I find amazing about D Space Nine in general is how long the game was, where these characters are not best friends by the end of this adventure. In a normal drama of the time, a normal Star Trek episode, these two would be friends. It would have been, The conflict between them would have been resolved at the end of the storyteller.
2: Yeah. But it's yeah. not.
1: We've still got a lot of episodes where O'Brien's going to be telling Keiko...
2: How annoying Beershear <laughs> is. Yes. Gets on my nerves. Always right there. Yeah, you get that that bit right at the very end of the episode where, like you said... Bashir's been trying to get O'Brien to call him Julian. And at the end, he says, you know what? You don't have to call me Julian if you don't want to. And, you know, O'Brien says, right, you are. um, That's a horrible accent. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It is one of the earlier episodes where they're still kind of feeling things out and trying to figure things out. And so everything kind of resets back to where it was at the beginning of the episode. Right. Um, you, know, you don't get a lot of development there, but it's it's nice to see them together for the first real time.
1: The next time they get together uh, really is in Rivals' uh, second season, 11th episode, where Bashir crashes O'Brien's new racquetball court. And um, we'll find out later that the, that matchup is not fair at all if uh, Bashir is genetically modified. But, uh, you know, they... they they share a common interest. They like racquetball. They like, we'll find out later, they like darts. Both of them. So they have a lot of potential hobbies in common. But, well, I mean, O'Brien's not really keen on accepting that. So we, you know, the episode's called Rivals and the rivals in the episode are that rivalry between the two of them.
2: Julian beat a Vulcan at racquetball back in his academy days. So, you know, maybe that is the first, Sign of the genetic engineering there, if he can beat someone that strong. And, you know, as we see in the baseball episode, we know that Vulcans are much better at sports than humans for the most part. Although that's, (laughs) that is definitely a case where the writers and producers were not playing the long game. They did not know the genetic engineering until pretty much they wrote that episode.
1: I don't know how important Ronald Moore was to the the writing process, you know, across the board, but that's how he ran Battlestar Galactica with... You know, seat of your pants, how can... You know, we're doing an episode, let's link back to the past, but never knowing where you're actually going. So it's like an improv going on. And I think a lot of Deep Space Nine was that as well. But it's a long game, and, you know, in retrospect, it becomes the long game. It's, it's discovering what works as you go in. So, originally, they might have thought that these two guys would always be rivals. But then, you know, things happen. They kind of put them together. They seem to have more and more in common. Let's... And organically... As much for the writers, as for the characters, as much as for the story, it became something. It might have become something else entirely. It took that turn. It's super interesting. And here we have in Rivals, we do have another difference between them. Their age is contrasted. One is One might have more experience with the game, but be... Uh, a little out of shape compared to Bashir and you know Bashir's the young Turk still you know in his prime and it seems to become a sort of the ordinary man versus the upper class smug Bashir that that's kind of how it's played although both actors would be you know not quite aristocratic because one is as the Brits call it Asian and Irish so none of them are upper class as far as uh, the UK goes you know that's uh, that's how it's played where Bashir is smug and upper class and he's doing these these you know these these samurai moves <laughs> it's quite <laughs> ridiculous and the other ones just going, and they just play the game and uh it refuses to to back down and let the kid win it becomes about pride for them I you know it's it's played for laughs but again it puts them at odds and makes them, you know, infuriated with one another. It's a fun episode on that. I don't love the A-plot with the casinos, but that part of it is great.
2: Yeah, and it's funny, learning what we do about Bashir later with his family, that aristocratic air he puts on is probably something he's cultivated for a long time to because you know his dad as we learn later is kind of one of those people who's just moving from scheme to scheme to from you know from job to job trying to figure out his next get rich quick or get fame quick idea so you know that's when we dig deep down it is actually probably something they have more in common it is their background bishir may act like the upper crust but you know he actually is more of a at least in parentage and background is comes more from a a working class right. type family
1: Exactly. Uh, Yeah, and that's something that these sort of find later, because that's an invention for later. The next episode after Storyteller, where they put these guys together and where they actually do get to save one another's lives, is Armageddon Game. You know, one with a very um, generic sort of title and often forgotten, I think, but super important for their relationship. Uh, season 2, episode 13. That's just two episodes after Rivals. Yeah. So in this mission, uh, O'Brien gets infected by these Harvesters, which is a uh, genetically engineered you know, virus. Virus. Yeah. Plague. And they're trapped on a planet together, uh, and really, this is where they confront their lifestyles, where, you know, they even imitate one another's accents, that sort of thing. And it's the first confidence that. Bashir, any of them imparts on the other. So why marriage is important to O'Brien? Bashir having fallen in love once and you know actually telling themselves secrets and confidences because they're thrown into dire straits. This is often the case in drama where people will just open up because you know maybe this is the end. That's an episode where they do warm to one another and then later deny it when it's when it's all over. (laughs) O'Brien sort of (laughs) says,
2: "No, he's still annoying." Yeah, I yeah. I, I love the, the scene at the end with, with him and Keiko and how he denies the friendship there. And also, I think one of the greatest punchlines to an episode where Keiko, you know, the only reason that the DS9 crew was searching for O'Brien and Bashir at this point is because Keiko said, this can't be real. O'Brien never drinks coffee after 3 p.m. <laughs> so the, the final bit of the episode where o'brien's like you know i could really use some coffee right now What? you never drink coffee after 3 p.m yeah i do uh you do (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people i've found are not a big fan of keiko and this is kind of one of the first real signs we see that that keiko doesn't know this relationship as well as she might think she does (laughs) and you know later we get to hear that uh o'brien loves keiko but maybe he likes Bashir a little bit more.
1: Yeah, eventually that <laughs> gets to be the truth.
2: And that that's that's one of the another one of the things that I really like about their friendship is I have been married in the past and and I did have a best friend at the time where I kind of felt that way. Where I love my wife, I love spending time with her, but I like this friend just a little bit more.
1: <laughs> it's just a different kind of relationship. Definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's it's true of uh, you know poor Keiko is well I, I say poor Keiko, but you know maybe she, <laughs> maybe uh, it's important to her, for her that to, to, that O'Brien has another friend. You want your partner to be full rounded and have. A other interests and it's not you know, just into the marriage and nothing else and it becomes sort of self-cannibalizing at some point unless the person has experience outside so they can tell their spouse about it later i think that's uh that's healthy i hope keiko has friends too you know
2: you'd like to think so i mean she she does have the the botany expedition that she goes on to Bejor and and has some friends there but we we really don't get to see much of her outside life on camera so we just have to kind of fill it in ourselves.
1: Now, here are the turning points, I think. Two episodes really stand out as moments where the relationship is changing. I think at the end of the Harvesters thing, after Armageddon game, they're sort of denying the friendship, but the respect, I think, is there. At that point, they at least there's a trust. The two episodes would be, uh, in season three, Visionary, 17th episode, and Explorers, the 22nd episode. In uh, Visionary, it, this is the one where O'Brien sort of uh, keeps moving forward in time and seeing visions and then maybe correcting the, um, the timeline before the station blows up, basically. Uh, but this is where they set up the, the dartboard.
2: Their first game is actually an episode before that in profit motive. But they actually put it up at Quarks in Visionary, and that's when you know you get to start seeing the regular dart game at Quarks.
1: Much easier to use the dartboard as a, a thing they do together than the racquetball because you don't need the extra set. Other characters can crash into it and you know interact with them while they're doing it. So I, I think yeah. the dartboard was a good idea, and also very British
2: and very easy to talk while doing it. And, you know in as we saw in rivals you know when you're when you're actually playing the game racquetball you're not going to have a deep conversation whereas in darts you can talk for a
1: little bit at this point they are calling themselves by their first names yes so that's that's an important step they seem to pal around Almost by choice. Because they sort of have to be together just so they can prove the visions are true and all that. So it's almost by choice, but they are palling around. They are committing to activities, even if they are more like rivals, perhaps. They have weekly activities now. They're getting closer.
2: The big reason for that, at least in story wise, is as I mentioned, Keiko goes on that botany trip. And we get a couple of little mentions here and there in episodes before that, like in Fascination, where they're getting coffee together and Bashir says, you know, we've played 70 racquetball games since your wife left. I'm a poor substitute for your wife. And O'Brien responds, well, I could have told you that. So O'Brien, you know, needs someone to talk to. He, He no longer has his wife present there so he needs someone else in his life and bashir turns out to be a good work wife <laughs> yeah work
1: wife. <laughs> yeah and even that when o'brien uh, thinks it's kind of desperate you know and he might die he he leaves the message he wants to leave to keiko he leaves with bashir so again that trust that they've forged uh, over the, their experiences actually is making them professional friends but more than that I think mm-hmm. and then it really explodes with explorers as I said before it, you're not an in-between kind of guy
0: what do you mean? well people either love you or hate you really? I mean I hated you when we first met I remember and now? well no I don't <sighs> that means a lot to me chief it really does really well no. that is from the heart huh? huh I really do
1: not hate you anymore the drinking binge you know Bashir gets blanked by Elizabeth Lenz, who was his rival at school and she doesn't even know who he is so it's it's a big misunderstanding but th- they wind up not drinking synthahol uh, but you know, real but the real stuff, <laughs> the real the scotch, I guess. So they get drunk. They're singing uh, Jerusalem, and we really do get. I love the lines here because this is their the relationship update. Yes, where O'Brien admits to not hating Bashir.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's. I love those lines, but looking at it you know now 20 years later you know you would you'd kind of hope that humanity moved beyond that kind of semi-homophobic o'brien saying you know people either love you or hate you and i used to hate you and now i uh uh don't hate you you know the the fact that he can't say love you at that point i'm a little a little ashamed that they couldn't Take that step in 90s television between two men and and have them say, I love you, man. You would hope humans in four or five hundred years would move past not being able to say I love you to right. a, a friend, even if they happen to be of the same
1: gender. That cheap gay joke. But I don't yeah. think for O'Brien that's necessarily what it is, because I think Bashir is very lovey-dovey you know, about expressing <laughs> his feelings, his, his strong friendship feelings. Uh, he'll say he loves O'Brien, but uh, I think O'Brien just has trouble saying it to anyone. I think he has trouble with emotion. I think he's a very closed off man. I think that's how he's generally played. So to me, like yeah. seeing it now, I, I live in the same culture you do. And normally that's the kind of stuff that, that irks him uh, when it happens. But in this case, I did, I just. Didn't read it that way when I rewatched these episodes. I really, because it happens again and again and again where O'Brien doesn't quite want to give Bashir the satisfaction of saying he's his best friend. You know, it's, <laughs> it's more about not letting Bashir get that that win because Bashir so wants it than it is about any kind of perceived impropriety between men, you know, uh, I, I mean, that, that. that's how I read it. But, yeah. uh, but you're right. Also, I, hopefully the writing wasn't driven by that too much. It just feels like O'Brien just doesn't want to talk about emotions.
2: Yeah. Although we, we do get that again in what I think is the next big, well, this is their first real test of their friendship in hippocratic oath at the beginning of the episode they they get the joke in there of so you wish keiko was a man so Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know i think that's you still have to have to at least acknowledge the possibility that that the writers were maybe not as forward-thinking as they could have been
1: I agree. That's a cringy one.
2: Yeah. So why don't we get into the tests? So like I said, Hippocratic Oath, they crash land on that planet with the Jem'Hadar who have wanted to free themselves from the Ketrasel White, and Bashir goes all in for trying to cure them of that addiction, while O'Brien is more intent on just escaping.
1: Right. And there is a betrayal.
2: Yes of a a large betrayal by o'brien and you know it's it's really the first time that bashir tries to put his foot down and say i'm the superior officer here you have to follow my orders and o'brien says no you may be the superior officer but i know better I know what the right thing to do is, and it's to get us out of here and get us safely home. At the end of the episode, it, it looks very strained on their friendship. You know, they they were supposed to have their weekly game that day, and and they say, eh, "I don't feel like playing games with you right now. Maybe next week." And they kind of just leave it there.
1: Bashir says, "Give it a few days." And smiles, and I think he forgives very easily. I think this this is the friendship is already strong enough at this point that Bashir can accept the other person 's point of view, and though they will never agree on this it 's probably not a point of conversation after this let 's never mention this again, but sure. he also accepts that that O 'Brien had a point of view that was not necessarily incorrect, you know just went against his own ethos, and that this friendship is too important to him to. Let it go. This is a relationship that he has to live with that's important to him enough that he forgives. I think at the end, this is a scene of forgiveness that can only happen with people who are, you know, strong enough friends that this shouldn't matter in the long run. Whereas if you have a friendship that's more, that's a bit looser and a bit less, less loyal. A betrayal like this might be the end of that friendship. Yeah, might be. Well, you yeah. know, that that's it. Let's. Uh, we have to work together, but since we'll never agree on anything, and you're not the person I thought you were, were, we'll never be friends again. You know, you just phase that person out of your life. That does not happen after this.
2: Unfortunately, I have had that happen to me on a couple of occasions. But, sure. Yeah, but thankfully, they do work their way through it. Um, and like you said, they they kind of just never mention it again. I guess forgive and forget is probably the best way to to say how they handled this stress yeah. on their friendship.
1: And I think O'Brien does make a case at the end. It's not, he's, he's a stubborn person, but he's not so stubborn that, that he wants to ruin the friendship over this. You know, I think they meet halfway in this. And later on, when we, you know, the next episode that we watched for this was seven episodes later, a Hippocratic Oath was episode four of season four. And in the home front, in episode 11 of that same season, we see them at the hollow sweets. Uh, they are playing together. They're replaying the Battle of Britain. Uh, so a- again, a bond of Britishness, I suppose.
2: Yes, uh, Miles even puts on a English accent <laughs> while they're in costume.
1: And so they're having fun together. I mean, they've they've just the hanging out together hasn't stopped, and in fact, they've found new activities. That mission, that thing, they probably, you know, they wrote their reports and they downplayed because it's not, Bashir says it's not his style to, you know, bring him on report. Yeah. So they sort of, let's move on from here. And by uh, home front, we see that their friendship is just as strong as as ever. We're not seeing it necessarily a friendship that is based on uh, sacrificing for the other any more than any other two Starfleet officers. It's really based in fun and having activities together and spending time together during your downtime, which is what most friendships are like.
2: Exactly. You know, it's it's like I said before, they're geeks at heart, both of them, uh, with the hollow Sweet programs that they both like to play so it's good to see them back together we do get a, a little hint that they're friends again a couple episodes before in little green men they both go in on a gift for nog when he's leaving the Academy. But yeah, the biggest thing that ties them together are their common hobbies and their common loves for games.
1: And in Hard Time, which is uh, the 19th episode of that fourth season, we have a very strong you know, emotional episode for O'Brien where uh, he is imprisoned for a few seconds, but to him it seems years and years, and in that uh, fantasy, in that virtual reality, uh, he is saddled with a different friend, and he ends up killing that friend, as we find out through the episode, Uh, and has to admit to himself that if it had been Bashir, if he'd been in prison for decades with Bashir, he would have killed Bashir for a scrap of food at that point. He became an animal, and doesn't trust himself anymore and uh is ready to commit suicide. I mean it's uh, Deep Space 9 went to some dark places compared to uh, most of the other shows. And here of course Bashir is going to be O'Brien's support system because he's the doctor, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but there's also a counselor that we never see that's supposed to be part of that equation. It's Bashir who brings him back from the brink of suicide and it's Bashir who shows that the friendship is more than just having fun he's there for him in his greatest need and greatest pain
2: yeah you're right that is definitely one of the darkest episodes but at the same time you know that friendship is a beacon of light for o'brien at the end there he admitted that he would have killed bashir
1: you know he imagines that we'd never know but he imagined that he would have because his feelings towards Echar, uh, the fantasy figure, who he thought was real, mm-hmm. had become a friend, someone who he'd spent decades with in that fake prison cell. Right. Uh, so so to him, him, Bashir, Keiko, the kids, he can't trust himself. I think that's the real pain here is that he can no longer trust himself. He's crossed a line he should never have crossed and never thought he'd cross And now that he's back in the real world, it doesn't matter if this was VR, he did it. And he knows he did it and the guilt is eating him up. I think he's afraid that having gone there, he might go there again Yeah, and be a danger to his family and friends. What's interesting in the whole thing is that they they didn't saddle him with a fake wife. They saddled him with a fake friend. So Ichar is essentially Bashir. He's a stand-in for Bashir. And so at the end, it's Bashir that has to bring him back that has to make him step off that ledge and come back. It's not Keiko doing that scene, it's Bashir. That that shows the depth of that friendship and the importance that they both place on it.
2: It's been a little one sided up until this point, but we yeah. we do yeah, we do really get to see that O'Brien depends on Bashir as much as Bashir needs O'Brien's approval and friendship.
1: And from there, they don't uh, put these two guys together, uh, for, you know, for any great big adventure until very close to the end. We, you know, there are a few seasons that go by, and this is now the relationship. I think by this point, we just accept that these two guys are hanging out together. They go to corks together. They play darts together. They go to the Hollow Suites together and that they are a tight unit. Yep. And we don't need to explore that. We can use them in subplots. We can show them in one-off scenes. You know, these guys are important to, to one another and that's clear. We can concentrate on other characters. I think that's what happens through the couple next seasons really. And that really brings us to the final arc which we need to talk about because uh, obviously these two are going to be split up by the end because of circumstances that, you know, the season finale and all that. Let's look at that final arc. The Ten last episodes, the Dominion War Pa race, whatever, everything comes to a crash. <laughs> everything comes together in that final arc. And in Changing Face of Evil, which is episode twenty of that the seventh season, uh, we see you know the big Alamo model and you know they've taken over a part of Quark's <laughs> for their project.
2: <laughs> well, they've taken you know. over a part of uh, Miles' living quarters for that model. As well. Yeah. They do the the Battle of the Alamo. And they talk about that quite a bit in those last few episodes. In the final episode, you know, when Bashir and Ezri Dax are now together. There's the Battle of Thermopolis that they're going to start doing together. And we find out that Bashir is, is kind of nihilistic <laughs> deep down. He loves the uh, battles that are impossible to win.
1: Which is supposed to be a mirror for what the, the station is going through. But yeah, you're right. It's sort of a... it's it's getting bleak.
2: This is when we, we see them together for the last few times. Mostly it's around the Alamo and their friendship there and their, their different plans for that uh, hollow suite program but then the big last bit for them is a couple episodes later when we get to extreme measures
0: she left an to for keiko <sighs> do i don't know what we were planning uh, what were you no I want, I want her and the kids to understand why i had to do this she'll understand she'll know you did it for me uh, that's what'll upset her the most she always said I, I liked you more than I liked her. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe you do a bit more. What? Are you crazy? She's my wife, I love her. Of course you love her. She's your wife. Yeah. I'm just saying maybe you like me a bit more, that's all. I do not. You spent more time with me. We work together. We have more in common. Julian, you are beginning to annoy me. Darts, racquetball, Luke's Lounge, the Alamo. Need I go on? I love my wife. And I love Esri, passionately. You do? Yes. Have you told her? Not yet, but I will. Oh yeah? When? Well, when I'm ready. It's just that I like you a bit more. See? Yeah, I've admitted it. Yeah, well
1: I love my wife. So in this, their last adventure, uh, they well basically the plot is that they've got to get the cure for Odo's disease and they'll do it by luring Sloane of Section 31 to the station and as Sloane commits suicide they have to go get his secrets by basically, uh, you know, plugging their brains into his and going into the mindscape, you know, as it destroys itself. So this is a sort of last hurrah. It's a little ridiculous as far as premise goes, but it's one last adventure together. And also one last chance to maybe die together, because it's it really, it's it's clever in the sense that it puts these two characters' lives in jeopardy where without touching any of the others, so that we can concentrate on their friendship. What do we think of this episode?
2: I really like this episode. I think it's like you said, the premises, it gets a little silly at times inside of Sloane's head. But I mean, it basically kind of plays out like another holodeck type episode where they're trapped in kind of a surreal location. And in the end, we find that Julian would have probably let himself die trying to grab as many secrets as he could. You know, Bashir's always had that that streak of wanting to be a spy. With you know his conversation with Garrick and the Julian Bashir spy holosuite programs we see, and so he would have just stayed in there. But in a scene that that I found very reminiscent of the ending of Holy Grail, Indiana Jones and the the Last Crusade, not Monty Python, not, not Monty Python, the Holy Grail, uh, <laughs> but the the scene where. Indy is trying to grab for the for the grail. And Sean Connery, his dad, Henry Jones, says, Junior, you have to come back. You're more important than this. And that's what O'Brien does for Bashir there at the end and says, you know, look, we need to go. You're more important than tearing down section 31 no matter how big a goal that is no matter how important that is you and our friendship together are more important than that
1: also reminiscent of hard time because it's about one of the two friends bringing the other one back to reality so there's an echo there of that time that Bashir rescued o'brien from himself. And this is, again, what, what happens. I also like that this friendship, you know, as it matures, <laughs> it's still about being kids and going on adventures and taking risks and breaking rules. There, there's something to that. And I think the writer's you know, nobody else in the series really gets in that final 10 episode arc which has a lot of storylines going on at the same time. You know, we're looking at a lot of stuff. Yeah. This is the only friendship, the only relationship that gets a feature episode. They don't stop the action to tell a Cisco Dax story. Yeah, it's really these two guys and we're uh you know, we're only a few episodes from the end. We're a couple yeah. episodes from the end and we're just going to take a break from all the Dominion War stuff really for an important thing we you know we need to cure odo which will have you know lasting impacts on the rest of the series but we're really taking a a one-off episode in what was basically a big serial with lots of stuff going on and just that moment because these that this friendship has to pay off the series recognized that
2: yeah we get to see them alone for a very long time for basically almost the entire episode it's just the two of them together in sloan's head even after they think they've escaped the first time. So, yeah, that that is impressive uh, that they spent that much time just dealing with their friendship right there at the end.
1: And this is the episode where those lines were said that you mentioned earlier about loving Keiko or Esri, but liking uh, O'Brien and Bashir a little bit more, the the friend that you, it's it's about wanting to spend time with a person who is very much like you. And uh, somebody told me once, and I think he was uh, quoting from some author, so I don't have the source (laughs) at all, but that being in a relationship, these are all relationships, obviously, but being in a romantic relationship, being married, is about conciliating your differences. Whereas friendship was about having things in common. It's a different way to develop a relationship. And that that, that speaks to that, where you might love someone because of that love, you're ready to accept a sort of compromise and accept differences and work around differences to make that relationship work. Whereas friendship, although that may also happen, is about just liking, hanging out with a person. If love is an addiction, friendship love, friend love, is sort of that addiction to doing stuff together, being on the same wavelength. And you can have also that in in romantic relationships. There's something about friendships that perhaps don't have the same kind of pressure put on them. You don't have to work around differences because you concentrate on the the commonalities. And Mm -hmm. these two guys have done that. They mostly talk about things that they have in common. So in this, when they say, I just like you a little bit more. You know, it's just, it just speaks to a different kind of relationship or a different kind of love that can bond people together, like and love in this case, you know, uh, that that's how they express it. So I, I like that bit, but um I especially like that at the end of all this, O'Brien's got to go to dinner, he invites Bashir, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> he doesn't need that alone time with Keiko.
2: <laughs> they have that final toast together. To friendship, and then yeah, O'Brien says, "Oh, I gotta get get to dinner with Keiko. You want to come?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> so after all that, I mean, they they still they still want to
2: spend time together.
1: And uh... that's the, that's how they're kids. Because when you were a kid, like today, I mean, you might still do that as an adult, but when you were kids, your best friend was the person that was always coming to dinner at your house. You were always at dinner at their house, you know, where, where the person was almost part of the family. Definitely. Let's talk about the very end because uh, after all that we had like we've given ourselves uh, some homework, uh, key episodes to watch, but I still wanted to watch what you leave behind, which we hadn't put on the on the docket necessarily, but the very last uh, episode I wanted to see I looked at what was their first interaction, I wanted to see what their last interaction was. And there's a lot happening in that finale, but there's four or five key Scenes about them, uh, where they're either with someone else because Bashir does have another friend relationship with Garrick, so there's a scene with that, and of course O'Brien has his family. The point is, at the end of all this, O'Brien is going to leave, go to Earth, and teach at Starfleet Academy, and he's going to leave Deep Space Nine where Bashir aims to stay. What I find interesting here is that first O'Brien has not told him, doesn't feel able to tell him, doesn't know what the reaction will be. I think that's interesting. And we don't dwell on the result. We don't dwell necessarily on Julian's uh, reaction. But we do get the scene where Bashir has with Garrick. They're on Cardassia, Cardassia's basically has fallen. And it's basically a scene about Garrick. Bashir's been told by O'Brien that that he's leaving the station. He's been told during a battle, during a spaceship mm-hmm. battle. You know, just like blurts out that <laughs> thing. There's no real aftermath to that. So later when Cardassia's fallen, Garrick is telling Bashir about all those great minds that have been lost in the war, in the uh, dominion occupation, everything we've lost on Cardassia. And Bashir is dead-faced. You can tell he's thinking about that other thing. He's not really listening to Garrick, in my opinion. He never really says it, but, you know, he's very, very grim and distracted. And I think here what we have is something very clever where they're contrasting the, the loss of Cardassia with the loss of this tight friendship hmm. that we wonder, even though they've promised one another, you know, oh, well, I'll go to Earth and I'll visit. But in canon, we don't know if they'll ever meet again, you know. Right. So we have a scene that's about what Cardassia's lost, the big epic stakes. But to us, what's epic is this friendship. We don't know Cardassia from yeah. Adam. Cardassia has been an enemy mostly. So that Cardassia has lost something is... A commentary on war and whatever, but really what we're feeling, what Bashir is feeling is this other loss and perhaps the loss of these characters over time because this is our last episode. What do you think? I, am I, <laughs> am I seeing too much into that scene or?
2: Um, I mean, you know, I didn't really see that when I was watching it this time but i can totally understand that interpretation of it for me the idea of the loss from the war and the loss of a generation as garrick put it is much higher stakes and so i felt Bishir was listening and was
1: properly reacting yeah okay
2: but <laughs> but you know i i mean it Art is always open for interpretation, so... uh...
1: And I will interpret art to death. (laughs) It's not an episode of Gimme Death*, Star Trek unless someone spins a wild theory, goes too deep down the uh, the rabbit hole. You know, that's my task. That seemed to me very relevant. But anyways, the very final moment, which was the thing I wanted to... Actually, was scanning through the story to see was a silent hug. I mean, there are no words at the end. Really, their final moment is a hug, goodbye, and Bashir walks away.
2: Yeah, I mean, are there any words that really would have done justice at that point? You know, to to see this friendship over seven years grow and blossom, and you know, they have that great montage for all of the mm-hmm. major relationships that shows the characters growing and the relationships I believe the very first one is Bashir and O'Brien and you know that's the first montage we get and then we you know we get some other montages with Captain Sisko and Jake and Odo and Kira but I think it's very telling that they open it up with that friendship And seeing basically all of the important moments that we talked about and how that relationship grew. And they, you really, there were a lot of moments of silence in that final episode where you just get the music and just the actors genuinely reacting to the fact that they won't be seeing these people who have in real life become their friends. And I think that's that's a much more real reaction and a, a much more impactful moment than any dialogue could have been.
1: Well, we've celebrated one of the great romances <laughs> in uh, in Star Trek, when a great bromance, a great relationship. I think a more interesting and organic relationship than even the great friendships that people usually cite, like the Kirk and Spock and Bones. This is something that's very dear to. Deep Space Nine fans' hearts, mine as much as yours.' And, you know, it's something to rediscover. If, if you haven't watched D. Space Nine at all or mean to rewatch it, this is a relationship to to track. It's something to watch and see gloriously blossom.
2: Agreed. I don't think there's anything more I can add to that.
1: Well, until we speak next time, uh, Kurt Onstadt, you will be perhaps working on a uh, New Warriors podcast?
2: <laughs> well, I am the world's biggest speedball fan. And so, yes, I... Uh, I think either a blog and or a podcast Uh, with the the new series coming out on Freeform next fall, I'm going to have to put my two cents in. Until then, you can always find me on Facebook. I keep everything public because I like to make my opinions known. (laughs)
1: <laughs> thank you very much for spending an hour with me on this topic, because uh, I, I don't feel the show talks about D-Space 9 enough. And uh, it is my favorite iteration of the show as well. But so many people want to talk about, you know, the original series. That's okay. But uh, D-Space 9 is fertile ground for discussion. So I'm glad we could talk about this topic. I'll let you go and uh, we'll do some uh, subspace transmissions next, your feedback and some Star Trek news. So uh, stick around. Thanks again, Kurt.
2: Thank you. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko Welcome to Deep Space Nine
1: Red alert, all crew members report to battle stations Red alert Shields up
0: What shields? You're Starfleet officers, now start acting like it Oh, it's just Garrett Plain, simple, Garrett Dex, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a big center of commerce and of scientific exploration. We start with one of
1: our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here at Fenji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro.
0: Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on Tutruefreaks.com
1: Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, we're getting rather close to the Discovery premiere, enough so that what I consider spoilers, even minor ones, have started to dribble out what with the San Diego Comic-Con now over, so I won't be discussing any more Discovery news specifically, out of respect for those who want to go in with the least amount of information, and that includes me, frankly. I will tell you there's a new trailer out for the show, so you might want to check it out. It features a lot more footage, a lot more special effects, and more characters, including Rain Wilson's take on Harry Mudd. I might also mention a bit of recently revealed casting, that of Wilson Cruz as Chief Medical Officer Dr. Hugh Culber half of the openly gay couple featured on the show. I think that's a pretty important thing. Not just a gay character who might not have to show it, but a couple. Uh, his partner being Anthony Rapp as science officer Lieutenant Paul Stamitz. <laughs> The Wrath of Khan will be getting a re-release for Star Trek II's 35th anniversary in AMC theaters. No idea if other chains will get it. Presumably, it's the extended director's cut from the 2016 Blu-ray, since AMC is showing a longer airtime than the theatrical release. It should show up on September 10th. On a recent Facebook Live chat, Zachary Quinto, the new Star Trek film's uh, Spock, revealed that a fourth New Trek film is being written, but we probably shouldn't get overexcited. Uh, he also made sure to say that there were no guarantees in the movie business. A Trek mentioned by New Paramount CEO Jim Giannopoulos made some ears per cup, uh, but though he might consider it a tentpole franchise, it's only referenced in the same breath as Mission Impossible and Transformers, from where Giannopoulos goes on to say Mission Impossible 5 was a big success, so there will obviously be another one. Not so for Trek... <laughs> Finally, did you catch the Star Trek IV easter egg in Spider-Man Homecoming? During the sequence where Peter swings around town, sort of, helping people, two guys ask him to do flips, one of them has a big boombox, he's played by Kirk Thatcher, who in The Voyage Home was the punk on the bus who gets nerve-pinched for playing his music too loud. Fun stuff. And now your comments on episode 11. Star Trek vs. Doctor Who. Uh, Rob Kelly says, Great discussion, guys. He says, Ever since Corey moved out of New Jersey, I don't get to talk to him anymore, so I, at least I get to hear him on Gimme That Star Trek once in a while. Any ideas as to why there has never really been a Doctor Who movie other than the two 60s ones no one likes? The show has been so popular for so long, it seems incredible that no studio has approached the BBC to make a big-budget adventure. To that, I'll say... Two isn't bad, first of all. And I guess you don't count the TV movie from 1996. But a feature film almost happened a few times, Rob. Daleks vs. Mekons would have been the third Cushing film, loosely based on The Chase, which was the third Dalek serial. They were really going through the catalogue like that. It was in production, but poor box office on the second Dalek film got cancelled. Doctor Who and the Cricket Men... It would have been written by Douglas Adams. This was one of several ideas that Adams proposed to the production office around 1976. It was rejected by script editor Robert Holmes, but who nonetheless encouraged Adams to continue submitting material. And this ultimately led to his commission for the Pirate Planet in 1980. Adams revised The Cricket Men for use by Paramount Pictures as a potential Doctor Who feature film, although nothing came of this project. Finally, Adams included many of the ideas from The Cricket Men in his novel Life, the Universe, and. Everything, the second sequel to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Then, during spare time in filming, Tom Baker and Ian Martyr, who played Harry Sullivan in the series and later novelized several Doctor Who scripts for Target books, wrote a script for a Doctor Who film, Doctor Who meets Scratchman. The script had Daleks, a devil known as Harry Scratch or Scratchman, Vincent Price was actually attached at some point, robots known as cyborgs, scarecrows made from bones, the Greek god Pan, and Twiggy. Really, as a new companion. The finale of the film would have taken place on a giant pinball table with the Doctor, Harry, and Sarah dodging balls as well as battling Daleks on the board. During his tenure as the fourth Doctor, Baker repeatedly tried to attract funding for the film. and At one point, he received substantial donations from fans, but after taking legal advice, was forced to return them. The plans were eventually dropped. Uh, in the interregnum between Classic and New Who, a lot of film possibilities were floated. The one that got the furthest was Doctor Who, The Last of the Time Lords, but again, nothing came of it, though these proposals are detailed in a sometime comic writer slash translator Jean-Marc Leficier's The Nth Doctor. I remember there being talk of the ultra-popular Tenant Doctor spinning off into feature films, but the BBC decided not to undermine the 11th Doctor's shot at glory. And of course, several landmark Doctor Who episodes including the feature-length Day of the Doctor, have been on the silver screen, uh, sometimes even in 3D format. Are you sorry you asked, Rob? And personally, I don't dislike the Cushing films. They're family fair, they're colorful, they're mostly fun. They're the Dalek TV serials more efficiently told. Some of the comedies a bit broad, but mostly, I like them. Shag chimed in at that point, says, I don't have anything to add to the film's discussion, other than saying the discussion about Doctor Who films between Siskoid and Rob makes him happy. I'm just glad it happened, he says. Rob's world is expanding. Then we have D-Bash, who says, Funny that you mentioned Rasmussen. I received a note this morning that Matt Frewer will be the headline guest at a local convention in February. Great guest. Lots of sci-fi cred. Brian Linton says, Thank you for the insightful analysis of two of my favorite sci-fi franchises. I love both of them. But if you held a gun to my head, I'd probably choose Doctor Who over Star Trek as my favorite. Which is odd, given that I'd probably fit better into the Star Trek universe. Your discussion of the cultural influences behind the two series may have shed some light on my preference. Though I'm an American, my mother was born in England, and my childhood was steeped in British culture. Perhaps Doctor Who just resonates more with the family culture of my youth. I also thought of another possible Star Trek Doctor Who dichotomy, proactive versus reactive. The Enterprise crew often learns about a problem on another planet and intentionally travels there to offer assistance. On the other hand, the Doctor just stumbles into situations to which he has to react. I haven't fully thought this through, but I suspect... It is strongly correlated with some of the other dichotomies you discussed, like exploration versus discovery and professional versus amateur. To be fair, many great Star Trek episodes involve characters reacting to unexpected situations, and the Doctor occasionally enacts a more long-term strategy. His trap for the Daleks in remembrance of the Daleks comes to mind. But I think this idea generally holds true. Now for Shag's actual Uh, long-form comment. He says, Wow! What an amazing conversation! Two of my all-time favorite franchises. I've dedicated countless hours of my life to both Doctor Who and Star Trek. It was a joy to hear both celebrated and analyzed. And well done, Siskoid and Corey. So many insightful comments. Well, I feel I qualify as an expert on Doctor Who and fairly knowledgeable about Star Trek. Y'all, we're having deep philosophical discussions I never considered before. Thoroughly enjoyable listening. A couple of thoughts worth adding. First, the show's formulas are often quite the same. I know that was implied in the discussion, but I'm not sure it was ever outright said. Regardless of the fact that the Enterprise is on a mission and the TARDIS is often guided randomly, the basic premise is often the same. Our heroes arrive, there's a mystery the heroes have to investigate, they use their intelligence to get to the bottom of the situation and develop a resolution, heroes win and leave behind the society to adapt to the changes left in the wake of our heroes. Second, Kirk is much more like the classic Doctor Who model than Picard. Kirk's cowboy antics and willingness to fix societies that went wrong is much more like the Doctor. Picard's tactics are driven more by the latter-day Roddenberry ideals you mentioned. And one minor correction. Siskoid mentioned the upcoming Star Trek Discovery novel being written by Kabuki's David Mack. Actually, there are two gentlemen named David Mack in our geek writer circles. One writes comics, the other writes Star Trek novels. They're actually two different guys, and this is Siskoid here. My apologies for making that mistake. Uh, then Shag finishes by saying, Seriously, this was an amazing episode. It was so on target with my passions. It feels like it was directly recorded for me. On behalf of me, thank you. Well, on behalf of us, you're welcome. Next up is David Ace Gutierrez. He says, I think this is the best Star Trek podcast going. Like Shag, I'm such a fan of both Trek and Who. I couldn't be more Cybok about this. Terrible pun. Next, Suntaran says, I find it interesting that there was no mention of C.S. Forrester. A Brit born in Egypt who wrote about a British naval officer during the Napoleonic War, i.e. Hornblower, while living in the States. Horatio Hornblower was the basis of both Kirk and Picard, you know, pulling the two places together. Also, I bet you can't guess my favorite Whovian species, he winks. I've never read any uh, Hornblower stories, so uh, I know very little about C.S. Forrester. Certainly worth checking out as I advance in age. And finally, on FireAndWaterPodcast.com, where all these comments were pulled, Jack Bond says, I expected more brawlin from the verses in the title and was ready to offer a jab I'd occasionally thrown at my brother. Classic Who was more realistic than Trek TOS. The Enterprise crew was falling into a new life or death adventure every week, but with the serialized nature of Who, the TARDIS was only doing it about once a month. (laughs) He also says, It was about the 51st time watching TOS's The Alternative Fact, that I began wondering about Lazarus, the anti-Lazarus, and their one-man space-time ship. Doctor Who wasn't available in the US back then, but maybe someone saw it from Canada? I'd probably write it off as coincidence. Lost in Space had been building small one-man spaceships that were easy to move around the set or on location, and the one-man time machine might be called the standard, going all the way back to H.G. Wells. Yeah, I don't think that's a real connection, especially since here I wonder if the anti-Lazarus is meant to be the master. The master wouldn't premiere until the 70s. But let me know if I missed some finer argument in your thought. Uh, Facebook likes and shares from Alan W. Wright. And Lapore, Chris Franklin, Christopher Smith, Chuck Rodriguez, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, Corey Drew, David Foster, D. Bash, Derek William Crab, Jared West, Jennifer Lee Breyer, Lucien Desarre, Max Romero, Nicholas Brom, Nikki Ilvento, Rob Kelly, who felt his worlds were colliding. Uh, Ryan Daly, Shag Matthews, and Sean Brock. Google Plus got us a plus from The Hammer Strikes, and Twitter retweets and favorites from Between the Pages, Chris, Christy T, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, David Byer Jr., Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, It's Plastic Man, Jenny Breyer, Max Romero, Pod Dylan, Rolled Spine Podcast, Superman Movie Minute, Treasure Comics, and Treconomics. Trekbot, we welcome our robot overlords. Thanks for leaving these comments, these shares, and these likes. Take part in the discussion. Let us know what you think of the Bashir O'Brien romance over at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Or of course, you can also leave messages at the Fire and Water Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. The hashtag is Podcasts. See you in a month. Until then, go boldly. Thanks, Julian,
0: for everything. What a friend's loan.